Welcome to the April 26th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is 2 Samuel 23 and 24 and Luke chapter 19. Hopefully you've already spent time in God's Word, so let's get started. Okay, 2 Samuel 23. Uh, We've come to the last two chapters of Samuel. We'll look at these two uh, today. In verse 1, it says, these are the last words of David. Now, we that is true, but it, we need to understand what it means because this is technically not the final words of David. Um, he's going to be saying some more things as we get into 1 Kings uh, tomorrow. But uh, but what that means when it says this, these are the last words of David, what that means appears to mean is that this is the last formal poem that he gives as he recounts his humble beginnings in Jesse's house to an exalted king anointed by the Lord. This is the final uh, formal thing that he will say. Everything else is going to be kind of trivial compared to this. So in verse 1, it does say this, These are the last words of David, the declaration of David, son of Jesse, the declaration of the man raised on high, the one anointed by the God of Jacob. This is the most delightful of Israel's songs. Well, he said that about his own song. He's uh, pretty happy with what God enabled him to write. Then David goes on to say that the Lord spoke to him and said that a king who rules justly and who has a reverential fear of God is a beautiful thing to the people. Well, that's true. Uh, Someone who is leading a people who loves the Lord, who fears the Lord and cares about the people. Yeah, that's a good thing when you've got a ruler like that. Well, after that, David speaks of the Davidic covenant. Uh, This is the promise that God would have someone to come after David who would be a descendant of David who would rule on his throne forever. Uh, Listen to verse 5. Is it not true my house is with God? For he has established a permanent covenant with me. That's it. He has established a permanent covenant with me, ordered and secured in every detail. So just listen to the following familiar verses from the New Testament regarding the Davidic covenant, uh, this uh, permanent covenant that he, he talks about. Listen to these very familiar verses in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, um, talking about the Davidic covenant. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Okay? The virgin's name was Mary. Now listen to some of what Gabriel said to Mary in verses 31 through 33. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Yeshua, Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God, here it is, will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Jesus clearly is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. When God made a covenant with David saying that one coming from him would rule on his throne forever, he's talking about David. 
what David was talking about in this chapter, roughly 1,000 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, was fulfilled in Jesus. This is why we read in the scriptures of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the king and those who are saved are in the kingdom. If you are saved, you are in the kingdom. But in another sense, Jesus is sitting on David's throne in a yet future event that we look forward to. When's that going to happen? I believe it's going to happen in the millennial reign. That's the thousand-year reign of Christ. And you can read about that in Revelation chapter 20. The millennial reign of Christ, in my understanding, is going to happen on this earth. And then when he finishes with his thousand-year reign sitting on David's throne, then everything will be destroyed. God will create a new earth and new heavens. Well, when we get to 2 Samuel 23.8, we read about some of David's mighty men and some of their accomplishments. In verse 8, we read about Joshab, Boshabeth, killed 800 men with a spear. Okay, so that's pretty impressive. Verses 9 through 10, Eliezer, one of the three warriors, courageously stood his ground when all of his fellow Israelite soldiers retreated from the Philistines. He was so exhausted toward the end of that battle so that his hand was tired and stuck to his sword. Man, that sounds like a tough guy. I don't want to meet him in a back alley. Verses 11 and 12, Shammah was his fellow, um, fellow Israelite. Uh, Shammah was with his fellow Israelites in a battle with the Philistines. The Israelites once again retreated from the battlefield while Shammah, verse 12, took his stand in the middle of the field, defended it, and struck down the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Okay, so that guy sounds pretty bad, pretty tough. In verses 13 through 17, King David was thirsty and said, If only someone would bring me water to drink from the well at the city of Bethlehem. Well, when you're surrounded by a bunch of bad dudes like David was, he wouldn't have been surprised that three of his warriors looked at each other. And, you know, I'm just kind of putting words in their mouth. And uh, one of them would have said, y'all want to have fun? <laughs> yeah, they smile. And they broke through the Philistine camp and drew water from the well at Bethlehem and brought it back to David. And I can only imagine them running while trying to keep that water from spilling. But when David was given the water and he realized that it came at the potential cost of their lives, he poured it out and wouldn't drink it. He didn't mean to disrespect those guys and what they did. But those three men had risked their lives to bring that water. And drinking it to David seemed like it would trivialize their courage and their willingness to sacrifice even their own lives. And so David did not feel like he could drink that. But he had some guys that were going to get him a glass of water, even if it meant they were going to die for it. In verses 18 and 19, we read that Abishai wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them. One against 300, and he comes out the victor. This is uh, an incredible feat for one man. Yet the writer of 2 Samuel tells us that he got the, to, to be the leader of the three, and the three is like quotes around it. It's an official title. There were three guys, and they were the three, the, the top dogs. Well, Abishai, 
uh, got to lead them. But the writer of 2 Samuel says, you know what, but uh, he could not become one of them. Because why? Well, one is now it would be four. (laughs) And I think he kind of liked three, but I guess he wasn't good enough. So he just got to lead them. It wasn't one of the three. In verses 20 through 23, we read, of some, we read of someone else that didn't make the cut. His name was Benaiah. He killed two men, we assume in combat, and then he went down into a pit and killed a lion. And then when an Egyptian came at him with a spear, it didn't matter that Benaiah only had a stick in his hand. He ran toward the Egyptian, stole his spear, and killed him with his own spear. And because of his valor, valor in war, Benaiah was one of the 30. Again, 30 was a title. He was one of the 30. But he wasn't tough enough to be one of the three. All he did was just kill a lion and a couple of guys. Wasn't bad enough. In verses 24 through 39, we read that this was the list of the 30. But it seems that quotes, again, should be used around 30 because the names don't add up to exactly uh, 30. Uh, Looks like uh, if we add up all of the names from verse 8 to the end of the chapter, we come up with 37, which is how the chapter, uh, the number that the chapter has at the very end. So there you go. 2 Samuel chapter 23. We now come to the last chapter of 2 Samuel. It's 2 Samuel chapter 24. Listen to verse 1. The Lord's anger burned against Israel again, and he stirred up David against them to say, Go, count the people of Israel and Judah. So, when we read the first verse of this account, who's responsible? Clearly, the Lord is. It says that he was angry at Israel, so he stirred up David against them to say, go count the people of Israel and Judah. Well, that's going to come back uh, whenever we look at another passage in uh, Chronicles. Uh, Whenever we get there, we're going to realize um, that someone else stirred up uh, David. But, Here it says that the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he stirred up David. So if we know nothing about this story, we don't yet realize what's going on. So let's just follow the storyline. Verse 2. So the king said to Joab, the commander of his army, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and register the troops so I can know their number. And when we read this verse and then the next few verses, we realize that David wanted to get a head count of his army. Nothing wrong with that, right? Well, apparently Joab thought it was wrong. Just listen to verses 3 and 4. Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times more than they are, while my lord the king looks on. But why does my lord the king want to do this? Yet the king's order prevailed over Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army left the king's presence to register the troops of Israel. So the census was done, and according to verse 8, it took nine months and 20 days. Joab uh, came back to provide the king with the number uh, that David wanted to know. And we read that in verse 9. Joab gave the king the total of the registration of the troops. There were 800,000 valiant armed men from Israel and 500,000 men from Judah. So everything sounds fine, right? 
Not really. Listen to David's response in verse 10. David's conscience troubled him after he had taken a census of the troops. He said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I've done. Now, Lord, because I've been very foolish, please take away your servant's guilt. What sin? Why did Joab have a problem with this? Why is David now bothered in his conscience by what he did? What did he do? Well, a generally held view is that David's sin was rooted in his motivation for having the census done. It wasn't that he counted, that one of the men counted. It was why he wanted the men counted. It's generally believed that David wanted to know the military strength of his army. It seems that he was relying upon his military strength rather than upon the Lord. He had relied upon the Lord before, but here it seems as if he was beginning to kind of lean more on the strength of his army. And friends, I'm telling you that just because you have experienced some mighty movements of God in your past and you have depended upon him and found him true and sure and good does not mean that you couldn't slide into a lack of faith later on. Um, yesterday's faith is not good enough for today, certainly not good enough for tomorrow. It seems as if David, who trusted in the Lord his God when he defeated Goliath and did so many other things, is now beginning in pretty much the end of his uh, reign as king before he turns it over to Solomon. It seems as if he's kind of sliding into just trusting in his army and not in the Lord so much. So, um, the, uh, the next day, the next morning, a prophet, and your translation may say a seer, but it's the same thing, a prophet named Gad went to David, and he spoke on the Lord's behalf and said that David had a choice of three punishments for his sin, that God was giving him three choices, and he needed to choose which one. Listen to verse 13. So Gad went to David, told him the choices, and asked him, do you want three years of famine to come on your land? To flee from your foes for three months while they pursue you? Or to have a plague in your land for three days? So a famine for three years, fleeing from your foes for three months, or a plague in your land for three days? And then he says, now consider carefully what answer I should take back to the one who sent me. Now, who was it that sent Gad? Well, it was the Lord. David replied that he did not want to fall into the hands of men. He wanted the punishment that came from the Lord's hands. And I suppose that he had suspected, maybe even hoped, that the Lord might be merciful, might be gracious, and that it would not be so bad. Apparently, the sin was grievous to the Lord because the plague ravaged Israel for those three days and 70,000 men died. Then the angel who was bringing on the death uh, to all of those men was told to stop by the Lord. And we're told where this angel stopped in verse 16. It says, The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. Well, Jebusite... A Jebusite uh, lived in Jebus, uh, which came to be known as Jerusalem. And so the angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana, who lived in what would become Jerusalem. 
The prophet Gad told David to set up an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. So David headed that way to build the altar. David told Arana, the owner of the threshing floor, that he wanted to buy his threshing floor to build an altar to the Lord. Arana, in an act of grace, offered to give whatever the king desired, including the oxen and wood for the sacrifice. But listen how David responded in verses 24 and 25. The king answered, answered Arana, No, I insist on buying it from you for a price. I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David said, I want it to be something that I purchase. I don't want to give the Lord something that didn't cost me anything. David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 20 ounces of silver. He built an altar to the Lord there and offered burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord was receptive to the prayer for the land, and the plague on Israel ended. So, the side of the threshing floor was, reflecting back on this short story, was in Jerusalem, or at least close to Jerusalem. And at that site, David was part of an incident where the sacrifice of an innocent animal was seen by the Lord to cover the sins of the worshiper and to stop the Lord's wrath. The worshiper was also brought back into good standing with the Lord. This is what we see happened on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite that David purchased. Well, a few years ago, I wrote an article on my website where I showed from Scripture that this site where David offered this sacrifice, this threshing floor, was where Abraham probably went to offer up his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, same thing. Further, this site was exactly where Solomon would build the magnificent Jerusalem temple where David offered up the sacrifice. That was where Solomon built the temple. And uh, I just I, I wrote an article on this, and I think it's fascinating to see that this site was the place where sacrifices would be offered. It was a sacrifice where God told Abraham to offer up his son, but then his son was not killed. But yet a, a, the ram that was caught in a thicket was offered there offered there on that mountain, on Mount Moriah, the range of Mount Moriah, and it was offered up to forgive, I think, Abraham for making Isaac so important to him and causing his relationship with God to slip. And so this place was a place where sacrifices were offered up so that the worshiper could come back into our right relationship with God. And this is also clearly and and you can I'll, I'll make the uh, the the link available on my show notes you can go to it and read the article but I show in scripture where this is exactly the site where the temple was built and what happened at the temple the same thing sacrifices were offered up so that a guilty sinner who was coming to worship could be forgiven by the um, you know by the offering of an innocent lamb and eventually, this whole thing would end as Jesus, who was in the temple on Sunday, and we're going to read about that when we look at Luke 19 here in just a few moments. Um, Jesus went into the temple on Sunday, and on Friday, he would be on the cross. But when he was there in that temple, um, he was leaving the temple. God left that temple. God no longer showed up in that temple when Jesus left. 
But Jesus was finally the final lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. And he would die there on that mountain. And he, his sacrifice, would pay once and for all the sins of every single person who would trust in him. There is something so special about that site. Once again, I wrote an article on this a few years ago. I'll provide the link in the show notes. You can read that if you'd like. Okay, so let's look at Luke 19. Verses 1 through 10, we have uh, Jesus visiting Zacchaeus. We're not told how short Zacchaeus was, but we are told that he was short. This is a big part of this story. He was so short he couldn't see over people's shoulders, over their heads. Jesus was passing by and around Jericho, and so he climbed up in a sycamore, the Lord he wanted to see. Um and uh, so Jesus looked up, and maybe it was the humor of the situation of this uh, short man climbing a tree to look at Jesus, or maybe just Jesus just saw his sincerity and his passion, but something caught Jesus' eye, and Jesus looked up and said, you know what, I'm going to your house, let's go over and enjoy a meal. Jesus invited himself to dinner. And so whenever that was said, um, and he said that I'm going over to your house. Then we read in verse 7 that some people ridiculed Jesus for going to Zacchaeus' house. And they said, it says this, All who saw it begin to complain, he's gone to stay with a sinful man. You know how much Jesus cared about that? None. Nothing. Jesus did not care. Jesus seemed to care nothing about what naysayers would say. If going into the residence of a sinner meant that people would talk about Jesus, he just didn't care. He cared more for people and more for sinners who needed to be told about the kingdom of God than he did about what others were saying about him who were not lifting a finger to share the gospel. So when Zacchaeus said uh, there at the meal that he would give half of his possessions to the poor and also pay back four times the amount of anyone he may have extorted, Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Now what's Jesus doing? Is he saying, hey, because you did that, you are saved? You are now saved? Is he teaching a works salvation? No. No, no, no. Works don't save us. Good behavior doesn't save us. Jesus was saying that since Zacchaeus had said, I'm going to give half of my money to the poor, and if I've ever taken anything that didn't belong to me and I come to find out about it, I'm going to give that person four times the amount back that I took from him. Jesus was saying, today salvation has come to your house. He was saying, I see the evidence of saving faith in your heart. Friends, I'm telling you over and over in the gospel, it tells us, it reveals to us, it illustrates for us that if we are truly saved, it will show up in our speech, it'll show up in our behavior, it'll show up in our motives, our attitudes. We will never reach perfection this side of heaven, but we will become be becoming more like Jesus, and it will become more and more obvious that we are a follower of Jesus. That's what Jesus was saying. He wasn't saying that uh, Zacchaeus' intentions saved him. He was saying, no, as I listen to what you just said, it's obvious you have been saved. This is what saved people do. 
Verses 11 through 27, we read about the parable of the ten minas. And uh, listen as Jesus begins this parable um, in verse 12. He said, A nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself authority to be king and then to return. He called ten of his servants, gave them ten minas, and told them, Engage in business until I come back. So the master takes off, and this is a picture of Jesus taking off to heaven. And believers are the ones left behind who are supposed to engage in the work of the master while he's away. We're the ones who have been given the minus. Well, listen to verse 15. At his return, the king, at his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants that he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. So this is a picture of judgment day. We stand before the Lord and he assesses how we spend our lives for his benefit. You know, he didn't give them minus and say, hey, this is y'all's, keep it, do whatever you want with it. I'll never ask any, I'll never ask for them back. No, they were his servants, his slaves. He said, I'm going to entrust you with something. So as I'm away, I want you to do business and increase, um, increase my wealth. You know, that's what he's doing. And that's what we are to do with our life. This is what saved people do. Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. One of the things that's talked about in scripture is the lost a lost person focuses on things of this earth. They live for this earth. They live for themselves. They focus only on the here and now. But saved people, they focus on King Jesus. They focus on the kingdom. Now, they have jobs and they have families and they have ball games that they go to and everything else, but make no mistake, they recognize that they are under the authority of King Jesus and they are desiring some more than others, but saved people desire to live for Jesus and to increase his kingdom, increase his kingdom. It's an insightful part of this parable, um, and it. it, it, it let, let me let, let me start this over. An insightful part of this parable is that the one who gains ten minas was given the privilege of ruling over ten cities. The one who gained five minas was given the privilege of ruling over five towns. And this points out to what we, how, how what we do in this life will have ramifications for eternity. Not everyone who goes to heaven will get the same amount of rewards. Not everyone who goes to heaven will have the same privileges in eternity. It's what we do in this life that will determine our number of rewards and the privileges that we have in heaven. The one... According to the parable, the one who did not gain a single mina represents someone who is lost. God had given them a life. He'd given them opportunities to increase his kingdom, but they did nothing for the benefit of the king. Why? They did nothing for the benefit of the king. Why did they not do that? Because they didn't belong to him. And that's why they were sent to a place called hell, because they did not further the master's um, kingdom. They were not saved. And so they were sent to a place called hell. In fact, using the language of the parable in verse 27, Jesus says, But bring here these enemies of mine who did not want me to rule over them and slaughter them in my presence. 
Well, in verses 28 through 40, let's pick up the pace. In verses 28 through 40, Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, and this is Sunday. In a few short days on Friday, he's going to be on the cross. Verses 41 through 44, uh, we hear of Jesus crying. You know, when we think of Jesus crying, we think of John eleven thirty-five, where he stood at the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, and it's the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But we read in verses 41 through 44 that Jesus cried over Jerusalem too. In fact, let me read these verses for you. Uh, Verses 41 through 44, as he approached and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it. He cried. Can you imagine Jesus' tears coming down his face and he's crying? He's saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. You know when that happened? A.D. 70, when Titus the Roman came in and destroyed the temple, ransacked Jerusalem. Verse 44, they will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. This, this verse, among many other things, one of the things that it brings to mind is just the, the beauty of the paradox between God's sovereign control over all of creation and mankind's free will. Some people take God's sovereign rule over creation and say, well, if God is so in control that uh, you know he's, he's decreeing what people do, and, and in their mind, they, they They don't see how this works, and I don't understand how it works. It's a paradox. But in their minds, they think, okay, if God is that in control, the mankind really does not have free will. He's kind of just going along with what God has already determined. But we don't believe that. The Bible doesn't preach that. God does decree things. God is fully in control of all things, and yet it's a paradox because the Bible also tells us that people have the ability to choose. How else can you explain the God of all creation, God the Son, weeping over Jerusalem, expressing his desire that they would come to him, but they did not, and therefore they have made the choice that will bring on their destruction in about 35 years in A.D. 70. I just want you to know that as you look at Scripture, don't let anybody pigeonhole you. Don't let anybody label you one side or the other. I mean, you, you, if, if you are someone who believes the Bible, then you believe that God is fully in control of all things. You don't have a problem with the words elect because it's in the Bible. You don't have a problem with the word predestination because it's in the Bible. You don't have a problem with foreknowledge because it's in the Bible. All of those verses speak of God's authority. But it's also true that you and I see in Scripture that we have free will. In fact, John 3, 18, Jesus says that those who will spend an eternity in hell, they're condemned already, Jesus said, because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten of the Father. In John 3, 18, Jesus does not say that people are going to hell because God didn't choose them. 
Jesus says in John 3.18 that people are going to hell because they did not believe. Jesus is putting the responsibility on them. So we believe both. God is more in control than anybody could ever imagine. But God also has at the same time given each of us the ability to make our choices. Verses 45 through 48, when Jesus went into the temple on that Sunday, um, he saw that they had turned the place of worship essentially into a circus. There were so many distractions that people couldn't worship in that place, so he cleaned it out. I think he was furious. I think he was angry. I think he was raising his voice. But one thing I want to draw, a little application I want to draw, at least a clarification I want to bring out about this, is that this parable, I don't believe, forbids selling a product in the church building. Uh, I've been in places where that was it. Hey, you can't buy and sell in the church building. You have to go outside in the parking lot, and there you can buy and sell. I think that's a simplistic application of this. I don't have a problem at all with a singing group that's come in and, and they've got a ministry. And, and so one of the ways that they're able to support their ministry is they sell CDs and they've got those out at the, the Welcome Center desk or, you know, someplace like that. I don't think that's forbidden by this parable. You know, if we had uh, Christian comedians at our church recently and uh, if they had wanted to sell some product, I would not have stood in the way. They could put that out there in the foyer, you know, out by the... Uh, in the sanctuary uh, near the entrance, I wouldn't have had a problem with them doing that. I don't believe this parable forbids that. What this parable forbids is anything that takes people's minds away from worship. Anything. And this isn't just about money. If it's some something in the order of service that really distracts from worship, if there's something going on that is causing people to not be able to worship, that thing needs to go. That's what this parable is talking about. It's not simply buying and selling. That's not it. And in fact, I would say that even, even that, though, you know, if you were to bring that into a place of worship, in, in many people's eyes, yes, this that, that be, it, it becomes more more about business than it is about worship. And uh, we, we speak of a free gospel, so let's just keep money kind of away from it. And even as we give to the Lord, it's a free will offering. It's not anything that we expect in return. We're giving to the Lord through the ministry of the church. So anyway, I just want to in, encourage you to think about this, that I don't think it's simplistically saying no selling in the church, no selling products. I think what this parable is saying is if there is anything that is distracting from true worship, then get that thing out. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we do desire to worship you, but Lord, we don't want to merely worship you when we're in a church building. Lord, we want to worship you throughout our day. We want to enjoy you. Um, so Lord, I pray that you would help us not to think of our church buildings as the temple or even as your house because those buildings are not your house. Your Bible, your word says we are your house. Our body is the building of God, the church of God, the, the temple of the Lord. Our body, our physical body 
is where you are residing. And so our body is a place of worship. And when we go to work, we take our body with us, so we should worship you there. And when we take our body to the grocery store to pick up some items, we should worship you there. Uh, when we take our body and uh, lay on our bed at night, we should uh, consider lifting up a prayer of praise and thanksgiving that you brought us to the end of the day. And when we wake up in our body the next morning, uh, it should be an attitude of worship. Lord, thank you for giving me a good night's rest. Help me to enjoy you today and be obedient and submissive to you. Lord, help us to realize that our body is the temple of you so that we would desire to worship you uh, throughout the course of our week. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us into relationship with the Father. It's in your name that we pray this prayer. Amen. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and that it has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida, and I would love for you to check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you tomorrow.